Hey everyone, before you hear this wonderful episode with Dr. Susan Mandel on hypothyroidism that was recorded in what we're now calling the before times, I wanted to let you know that we are excited to announce that the Curbsiders are now partnering with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. And one more thing. You don't have to be a VCU employee, and it's free. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul and Stuart, we're we're here. We've done it again. It's it's, <laughs> it's past my bedtime. This is the Curbsiders tonight. We're talking about hypothyroidism with a fantastic guest. But uh, first, Paul, can you tell the oh, audience? Hi, Matt. Oh, hi, Stuart. I hi. I thought you were knocked out over there. Paul, can you can you remind the audience what it is that we do on this show? Oh, happy to as always, and what a guest we have. As a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We are, of course, joined today by the amazing Elena Gibson, who's going to tell us all about our guests and what our guest has, what knowledge she has to impart. So today we have a fantastic conversation with Dr. Susan Mandel, Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where she is also the Chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. She was the program director for the Endocrine Fellowship for the last 20 years, and she was the immediate past president of the Endocrine Society, which is a very impressive list of things she's done with. And her clinical and research interest is thyroid disease, and so today we will talk to her about hypothyroidism, including the diagnosis, the treatment, recognizing subclinical hypothyroidism, and how the management changes during pregnancy. That sounds amazing. And just like any endocrinologist would say right now, let's tee it up. Like a thyroid? (laughs) (laughs) Clarifying. Got it. Like T4. Like T4. T4. Okay. T4. I'm I'm stopping. (laughs) Yep. Dr. Mandel. Thank you so much for joining us. And is it okay if we go by your first name for the rest of the show, call you Susan? Absolutely. Okay. So Susan, can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and just like more who you are as a person, hobbies, it doesn't have to be all your your medical stuff. Yeah. So um, I'm a wife and a mom of two adult children, probably the ages of some of the people I'm speaking to tonight. Um <laughs> And um, who is very passionate about the thyroid, and I love to travel. And a fun fact was, um, in 2019, one of my fellows noted that I had been to every continent except for Antarctica. There was a reason, though. I was president of the Endocrine Society, so um, my passion is also teaching. So I was fortunate to be invited to many meetings to speak, to teach, to interact, and then to travel. There's got to be some thyroid problems in Antarctica. I That's mean, what I, I was going to say. I was going to throw that Actually, in Actually, T3. When we get to T3, think about the darkness. <laughs> so is there any recent play or show that you've seen that you would recommend? Um, yes, I did. Um, I'm really glad you asked that question, Elena. <laughs> um, so it was interesting because... Because I do have to say that, you know, being on a podcast is, um, it's my first podcast. Um, I've certainly done recordings or talking in front of large audiences, but it's um, definitely something that is um, involved with younger people. And so I was, this play actually reminded me of how things change over life. So a week ago, I was really fortunate to be at the University of Chicago, where our son is um, um, actually in law school, and he's acts, and he was in Waiting for Godot. And Waiting for Godot is like one of those plays that in high school you struggle to write, you know, essays about if you're still reading it because it's the quintessential existentialist play. And what I found was, despite my reservations about thinking about sitting through two productions of Waiting for Godot, was that it was, inc- it was incredibly easy to relate to. And I think 
that's what happens when my older self looks back at my 17-year-old self because it's really about people who are waiting for something to happen. They're anticipating something happening. Um, they want it to happen. And it's not clear that it's going to. In fact, in the play, it doesn't. And what keeps them going is the human connection. And that's what we do as physicians. That's what we do as people, as citizens, as family members. And what was just so surprising about it was what I struggled with, and I'm not going to tell you how many years ago I was 17, was just really easy to actually relate to now. And it was a great production. So thank you for asking. Yeah, that's good. I think sometimes I think back at being, you know, being 17 wasn't too far away, but it still seems like I thought I would change so much and you do, but there's still a lot in common between like 10 years of life. It's good to hear. I feel like every 10 years you look back on your life and you're like, that person was an idiot, at least for me. (laughs) (laughs) Usually it's true. Yeah, well, just because they, in, in, you know, in high school, they expose you to these great works of art where you have no human experience to even relate to them in any way meaningful. So you're like, you're just trying to, like you said, trying to think of something meaningful to say about it, even though you have no context <laughs> or any way to sort of relate to this thing that was built on a life's worth of experience. So it's, that's such, it's just a great point overall. So that, that sounds amazing. And that kind of is a springboard into the next question that we have. And that is, um, thinking back on your own, your own life, what, what is the, maybe the most memorable failure, patient complaint, or event, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, it's a um, really good question. And I first wanted to think about, you know, what is it? Failure is, is such a noun itself. Like, what does that mean? And so to me, I think um, I kind of view it as failure is when you try your hardest to do something and you have an anticipated goal in mind, and it just doesn't come out that way. And so when I think about that, I actually um, think about my first NIH grant. And um, I was, you know, a young fellow um, at a prestigious institution, so I won't name where, um, because I may say something about it later that's maybe <laughs> a little bit less than complimentary, but it wasn't my current institution. So not cash back then. <laughs> not, we're not doing Definitely not cash back. And I had written my K award. And, you know, when you're trying to be academic, you know, you're working many, many hours. And I had a two-year-old and I was pregnant and my K award didn't get funded. And I was at an institution that didn't have a mechanism for bridge funding. So they basically said, you know, go figure something out yourself. And what that was, was that was this incredibly precious window of time that I would have never had because I had a two-year-old and I was pregnant. And I sort of pieced together a a three-day-a-week job. And so most of my other colleagues at that time, you know, still working, writing papers, trying to get grants. And I was working three days a week and I was home with our daughter and it's an opportunity that I don't think I would have other, ever otherwise had. And when my grant actually did get funded, because it turned out they had some extra money, so five months later I found out it was funded, that stayed with me. That has always stayed with me. So my kids are now 29 and 27. They're all grown up. But that it was truly a unique, unprecious moment that was um, protected space to be with family in a way that I would have otherwise never been. And that's something that has remained with me and something that I try to, when I'm talking to young faculty members, is really important. So it was a um, something that wouldn't have happened if my grant had been funded right away. Wow, that's, a, that's fantastic. Yeah. We talk about and think about uh, how we spend our time a lot on the show. And I think that's just a great, that's just like one of the better answers we've had to that question ever, I think, of just uh, yeah. just the story overall. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, before we get to the case, did you have any quick advice that you've received along your career at any point that you would like to share with the audience? You've already given a lot of great advice. So if you don't, if you're all tapped out, I understand. I would just say, um, you know, as someone who's been involved, I've been a fellowship program director for almost 20 years. I'm no longer, but it's just as a learner, it's just so important to be open to new opportunities and new experiences. Um, because even though you think you may have plotted a pathway, you never know where something is going to take you. So to constantly be open, to be flexible and to be resilient and to, you know, not to be able to take um, take that path and you can always turn back. Um, so I think that's really important. And um, you don't know where you're going to end up um, until you, you know, try something new. So that's it. Wonderful. And with that, I will ask Elena to... Tell us about a case from Cashlack Memorial. We could get started talking about thyroid. Elena, unless you wanted to start with something else, I'll, I'll leave it to you. I think that's a good place to start. And then we can kind of 
go into some of the details later on. Okay. So Miss Q we have coming in today. She's a 31-year-old female presenting to your clinic with complaints of fatigue, some changes in her menstrual period with some amenorrhea on and off and weight gain. She discusses how she has a family history of lupus and thyroid problems, but she herself has no current chronic diagnoses. And you are concerned about hypothyroidism, so you decide to do a workup and go from there. So starting with that workup and thinking about hypothyroidism, what are the most common signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism? And what are some of the more sensitive and specific signs that you see? So the first thing I would say for this patient is I'd want to know how long her amenorrhea is because I would want to make sure she wasn't pregnant. But (laughs) given that she is not pregnant um, and um, she has some amenorrhea, fatigue, and weight gain, speaking as an endocrinologist, there is another hormone test you might do, which is a prolactin, but clearly up there would be hypothyroidism. So the challenge with hypothyroidism is that um, symptoms are really not specific. And uh, I did this last night in preparation for today. I usually do this when I'm talking to primary care doctors, but I always say, why don't you just go to Google and type in weight gain and fatigue? And usually the top three hits are thyroid disease. Last night, it was only the top one hit. Um, And then they went into a number of other things. So that there are um, so many symptoms that can be associated with disorders of thyroid function. And in part, um, it's because so many organs either respond to the actual thyroid hormone itself by altering you know, gene um, expression, but they can also have non-genomic effects as well. And then in addition, um, people respond, even the, se- the, same, the same thyroid hormone levels in different people will result in different symptoms. So that if we had to rely on symptoms and signs to diagnose hypothyroidism, we would virtually never get it right because they're not very specific, nor are they very sensitive. Unfortunately, we have a TSH test that is incredibly inexpensive to do, and so we measure TSH. Certainly in the extremes of hypothyroidism, there are a number of things that you know we, we can find, like we can certainly find an enlarged diffuse goiter and um, we can find delay of relaxation phase in the tendon reflexes and dry skin, especially over the elbows. But those are patients who are really on the extremes. So fortunately, we have a blood test. So um, in this patient, certainly, you know, amenorrhea, reproductive um, um, changes in menstrual cycle can occur with hypothyroidism. Fatigue can occur with hypothyroidism. Weight gain in pretty profound hypothyroidism, not mild hypothyroidism. And then she already has a family history of thyroid problems, and most uh, hypothyroidism is caused by the autoimmune destruction of the thyroid, which is Hashimoto's. So it can run in families. And in patients with another autoimmune um, problem like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, hypothyroidism is also more common. So just based on her medical history, you would have a very low threshold to check a TSH. So I spend a great deal of my time trying to talk people out of ordering specific tests, like, you know, like screening CBCs on non-menstruating men and like that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> but it sounds like there are many, many, many potential symptoms of hypothyroidism. So I guess what is, you know, why are we not screening everybody or should we screen everybody? Or I guess what is the threshold to actually check a TSH is the question that I'm asking. What things specifically should prompt us? So screening itself in an asymptomatic individual is actually not recommended and it's not cost effective. So when you're talking about when you have a patient in front of you that has symptoms that could be suggestive of this incredibly diffuse um, spectrum of symptoms, you, you're not in the screening mode anymore. So that if somebody does have symptoms, and generally you are talking about fatigue, sometimes it's certainly heavier periods. It can be, you know, in the winter, people get dry skin, so that's a little bit hard to, 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 to make that as a, um, as a rationale for checking someone's thyroid function test. But in a young person, changes in the menstrual pattern, um, certainly things like new depression in a younger person, um, inability to get pregnant, infertility. Uh, so I'm talking about in someone her age, um, would be very valid reasons to check a TSH. Everyone's fatigued, though. <laughs> yeah, that's everyone's fatigued. That's the. I mean, so is it? Are yeah. there any more life sen- in the modern world? That's right. Are, are there any more like sensitive or specific physical examination findings that could maybe point towards this? So, again, 
um, you generally have to be pretty profoundly hypothyroid to begin to have some of the non-thyroid related physical exam findings, which are the delay in the relaxation phase of the tendon reflexes or the really dry skin, or you can get, I'm pointing to my eyes and this is a podcast, um, you can get puffiness around the eyes because there's glycosaminoglycans that don't get metabolized and then you get puffy. Um, you know, you can also ask about change in bowel movements and constipation. Um, so that um, obviously as internists, when I hear about fatigue, the first question I ask my patients is tell me about your sleep pattern. So you remember as someone who's a thyroidologist, I have patients who come to me with thyroid function tests that look like they should be in the appropriate range for someone who is euthyroid and they tell me they're still tired. And as you all know, as internists, it is just so much more common than we know for people to have disorders, disorders of sleep patterns, which are not related to their thyroid disease, but can certainly be directly correlated with their fatigue. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the challenge. It's just like the one of the more common complaints you hear from patients in primary care is I'm fatigued or I'm gaining weight and it's just it's so nonspecific. I was just going to mention how you you were discussing how people her age, those might be the symptoms as well. And does it change as people get older or do you mm -hmm. see different signs more frequently in those patients? Yeah, so there are other times, and again, it's not necessarily screening, but I guess you would say we're sort of case finding or trying to diagnose. So as patients get older, um, certainly, you know, when we're talking about um, effects on the heart, which are less common in younger people, anyone with new onset arrhythmias. So we had a president, um, the first President Bush, um, had atrial fibrillation, and it was actually a resident in the emergency room trained by an endocrinologist that thought about checking a TSH. So certainly new onset of a tachyarrhythmia in a lipid clinic. So for example, if you're being seen for hyperlipidemia in a lipid clinic, the likelihood of diagnosing overt hypothyroidism is several times higher than it is in the general population, about 10 times higher. Uh, certainly, as I mentioned, mood. So a new diagnosis of depression um, or any type of emotional ability, you would think about checking a TSH level. I didn't talk about the tachyarrhythmias or the um, lipids in a young woman who was, who was in her 30s. And then lastly, in a woman, for example, who has osteoporosis, you can, you'd want to, again, it's almost a case screening, but subclinical hyperthyroidism, too much thyroid hormone, can be associated with osteoporosis and fracture. So as part of the evaluation for secondary causes of osteoporosis in an older postmenopausal woman, you would check thyroid function tests. So cardiac lipids, bone. So, so, so let's say that she's noticed that her hair is falling out, that her skin's dry. She starts taking this, or like me, just loves the gummy biotin things, uh, and she gets her TSH checked. How, how is that going to affect it? And and what's it going to do the results yeah. in this case? So it's a great question, and it sort of depends upon how much biotin you're taking. Um, Let's just say about 3,000. So that's know. probably not quite enough, but no, oh, it's really? what you're okay. getting up there. So that, you know, the um, recommended dose of biotin is about 70 micrograms of biotin a day, and a lot of people are taking these supplements for hair and nails yeah. that are close to 5,000 to 10,000 micrograms a day. And so the challenge is that uh, the way the TSH is measured is by what's called an immunometric assay, which is a sandwich assay where the TSH molecule itself gets stuck between two antibodies. And those two antibodies are biotinylated. So what happens is the biotin binds and it prevents the antibodies from binding to the TSH. So you don't capture the TSH and so you can't measure it. So that when you're taking high doses of biotin, the TSH can be falsely low. And then there are other ways we measure other thyroid hormones. So when you have a low TSH, you're thinking about too much thyroid hormone or thyroid toxicosis, and you confirm that by measuring free T4 or total T4 or total T3. And those antibodies that measure those are also biotinylated, but they're what's called competitive assays. And what happens there is they're falsely elevated. So all of a sudden, you have a falsely low TSH and falsely elevated thyroid hormone levels and that is the biochemical diagnosis of thyrotoxicosis. So we usually ask patients to stop their biotin. Studies have shown it should be for 24 hours. To be safe, we usually say two to three days before checking thyroid function tests. I have never heard of that before. That is... Uh I've, really? There's I, a number. Yeah, yeah, there's a number of case reports of patients being inappropriately treated with methimazole for it. Wow. Yeah. Oh boy. Biotin-induced uh... thyroid function tests that look like Graves' disease. Who knew? 
Well, I, I wanted to ask about just the the thyroid testing because this I, th- I think a big part of this episode, at least the questions that I'm going to have are um, kind of counseling patients because I know there's all this stuff online about okay, that doctors don't know how to check thyroid. They only check the TSH. There's all these other things they should be testing. How do you how do you counsel patients when they come in asking about reverse T3 and why aren't you checking my T3? That's the one that matters. Things like that. The first thing is we check a TSH to confirm, provided that there's no reason why somebody would have a problem with their pituitary, which is what makes TSH, and then the TSH is in a valid reflection of thyroid function. So um, provided someone doesn't have a pituitary tumor, radiation, you know, traumatic brain traumatic brain injury, we just use the TSH. And if the TSH is normal, um, there's no reason to go further to check other thyroid function tests in an otherwise healthy patient. And so there I have a discussion with them about physiology. Um, The other time this comes up is when someone is hypothyroid and you've used levothyroxine to normalize the TSH and a patient comes in and starts to talk to you about other thyroid hormones. So what is normal physiology? Um, So there are basically, the thyroid makes thyroid hormone. They make two thyroid hormones, T4 and T3. They're named for the number of iodines that they contain. T4 has four, T3 has three. Uh, It's a challenge if you don't have enough iodine in your diet, which is really not an issue in the United States. But in other parts of the world, iodine deficiency is still one of the most common causes of preventable defects in cognitive development and in brain development of of children. But provided you have enough iodine, which we do in the United States, the way this usually works is the thyroid alone makes T4. And it turns out that T3 is um, actually the active hormone. It's the one that goes into the nucleus and turns on genes that are thyroid hormone receptive. But it turns out that Most of T3, 80% of T3 is actually not made in your thyroid. It's made in your liver or it's made elsewhere in your body where there are enzymes that remove an iodine from T4 to make T3. And only a little bit of T3 comes from your thyroid. So what I tell my patients is that if I were to have measured their T3 when they were fasting in the morning before they came to see me or if they had just gone for a run, their T3 level would be very low. And then as soon as they eat, they convert more T4 to T3 by deionating the T4, and the T3 level goes up. So the T3 levels fluctuate throughout the day, and they fluctuate based on physiology, so that the body is very good at converting T4 to T3 as needed. And so that a single snapshot of what their T3 is at a certain time does not provide sort of the integrative window of what's going on and what is the normal physiology of T4 to T3 conversion. Great. So it, under most circumstances, if, if you're checking, uh, if, if we were going to check this, this Miss Q, we're going to check a TSH and, and do you recommend we reflex order a free T4 or do you like to repeat the TSH if it comes back elevated the first time? It's a great question. Um, because you said elevated. Low is when yeah, you probably ask- want the free T4. So I think that if your TSH comes low, you should definitely reflex it a free T4. Mm-hmm. But um, if the TSH is elevated, um, the first thing that we do is we we do recheck it with a free T4. So even if you knew that on day one, a patient had a TSH that was 12, and you knew what the free T4 was on that day, the recommendation is not necessarily to intervene right then, but to recheck it in a month. So you could certainly make an argument that the idea of the reflex TSH to free T4 is really meant for the patient with the low TSH, because as long as the TSH is not very high, like you might say, if it's over 20, you would definitely want to check it. But if it's between the upper limit of normal to 20, your next step, you are going to want to check a free T4. Um, because if the free T4 is low, that's going to help you differentiate between what we call subclinical or mild hypothyroidism and overt hypothyroidism. Um, but if it's mild hypothyroidism or subclinical, where the free T4 is normal and the TSH is slightly elevated, your first step is just going to, re- to be to repeat it in a month. And what is elevated exactly? So in general, if you look at studies of subclinical hypothyroidism, meaning how high does the TSH have to be before the free T4 drops, it's over 20. If you look at studies where you say, when is it important to intervene? When have um, um, trials shown that treating subclinical hypothyroidism may be associated with a beneficial effect that's over 10? 
so it depends on the population that you're looking at. Um, but in general, uh, the certainly for you, let's go back to our first patient, our 30-year-old patient, because that's the one time I was going to say the caveat there is a high TSH even of eight in a woman who's trying to get pregnant, you might recheck right away and you might start treatment because in pregnancy, um, hypothyroidism, even subclinical hypothyroidism is very, very important. Like that. <laughs> but otherwise, um, things that have been shown to be beneficial are that if your TSH is over 10, um, that you can actually prevent certain cardiovascular um, adverse outcomes. You can also have some changes in lipids, some benefits, some lipids, your LDL may go up and the higher your TSH is as you treat you can have changes in your lipids. It's not really clear that it affects cognitive function when you're just mildly hypothyroid. Um, it can affect your, if your menstrual pattern's a little bit off, that can make that a little bit better as well. But we're really talking mostly about cardiovascular risk. And especially in younger people, it turns out that that risk yeah. may not be manifest until later on. But leaving it untreated, certain studies have shown that treating subclinical hypothyroidism, especially for people around 50 or 60, can really decrease the likelihood of having a major adverse cardiovascular event later on. I, I remember reading a study, and I, I don't remember which, I think it was the Green Journal, um, and this is like 2011, 2012, that, that suggested that treating subclinical hypothyroidism over the age of 70 may have had an increased cardiovascular mortality. Is this yeah, it's really, a truth yeah, thing? Yeah, so it's really, the, the literature gets um, very murky. And especially as there are people now who are doing meta-analyses, not just of trials, but of the individual data from each trial. So in general, the way I sort of look at this summary is that um, one thing we know is that the TSH normal range shifts upwards as people get older. So a TSH of six might not be normal for someone who's 35, but a TSH of six may be totally appropriate for someone who's 70 years old. So that one of the things is that there's a normal physiology that's not understood for why the TSH range shifts up. And there are actually a number of studies that have shown that if you're, for example, over the age of 80 and your TSH is a little bit higher, that you may actually have longevity. It's a study from the Netherlands that showed that if you don't treat. A couple of other studies haven't shown that. So overall, in putting it together as a consensus, we generally say when someone is over 70, we don't recommend therapy unless the TSH is over 10. But for mild elevations between, let's say, 4.5, which is the upper limit of normal, and 10, we tend to follow those, and we will not treat them. Whereas for younger patients, you might, because of this idea that there may be a long-term benefit of treatment, that you might treat or think about treating at a lower cutoff of maybe around seven if someone is under the age of 65 or 60, whereas if someone is over that age, you would follow them. So Susan, I just wanted to, because we're throwing out a lot of numbers here, and I just want to make sure that uh, we we recap a little bit for everybody. So we kind of veered off into subclinical hypothyroidism. Can you tell us just which cutoffs do you use at which age uh, and when people should think about treating and when they should think about following? Yeah, so in general, the recommendations are that if the TSH is over 10, given a normal free T4, this is subclinical hypothyroidism, and you should consider treatment for all ages. Uh, the way you initiate treatment might be different for older than younger patients. Whereas because there are some studies that have suggested there may be a benefit for younger patients if you treat subclinical hypothyroidism, some of the guidelines have just have recommended a consideration to treat subclinical hypothyroidism with a TSH of around seven if you're under the age of 60. Now, okay. pregnancy, women who want to get pregnant, we always treat because of the importance for euthyroidism during gestation. Beautiful. Thank you. So I guess back in my salad days, you know, back when I wasn't nearly <laughs> as smart as I am now, um, I, I used to sort of conceptualize hypothyroidism as like just this heterogeneous thing. Like it's just, there's just hypothyroidism. It's just kind of out there in the ether. And I didn't really differentiate more than that. Now I'm, I'm much, much smarter and I try not to show up the guests too much. So I wonder rather than <laughs> me talking about it, if it would be helpful, I think for our audience, if you could talk about different causes of hypothyroidism, sort of how to conceptualize that just so that we can kind of figure out sort of how to, if there's any further testing we should do again for the audience, not for me who already knows all about thyroid stuff. And okay. So please correct me if I am wrong, please correct me. I, I sure, really, it's like I can use help. So basically um, the most common reason why your thyroid doesn't work is because of what we call Hashimoto's or autoimmune destruction of the thyroid. Really common. Um, 
in the population, much more common in women than men. It's estimated that in the United States, for example, over the age of 50, um, you know, somewhere upwards of 8% of American women um, may have subclinical hypothyroidism. Interestingly, different ethnicities, so more common in Caucasian women than in African American women. Um, and there's some other ethnicities that have been studied um, as well. Um, the um, it's autoimmune because it's this autoimmune destruction exactly. so that it's more common, for example, if a patient has other autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, um, can occur in men as well. The um, challenge is, you know, the question that I'm often asked is, do I really need to measure TPO antibodies? Like we were talking about cost of testing. Do I really need to measure TPO antibodies? And I'm going to be a little iconoclastic here and say it's one of the tests I virtually never measure. Um, oh, wow. If you're hypothyroid, yeah, wow, yeah. So if you're hypothyroid, you're hypothyroid. So listen, I agree, yes. by the way. For what oh, thanks. That's <laughs> high praise. <laughs> I told you, you it was going to help me out. You feel great now. You should feel great about it's yourself. It's going to help me out. So if you think about it, if your TSH is 20 and you're overtly hypothyroid, do you really need TPO antibodies? We're talking about, obviously, this is not someone who's had radiation to their neck or has had a surgical scar, you know, who has another reason to have their thyroid destroyed. So on the other hand, if you think about it, and if a woman wants to get pregnant at that point, you know, are you really not going to treat her for TSH is 6 and her antibodies are negative and her free T4 is normal? You're going to go ahead and treat her. I think that time to measure TPO antibodies might be, and I would say, Paul, there might be a time, is <laughs> if you have that patient, let's say that older patient where the TSH is 7 and free T4 is normal, you want to know, is that someone who's more likely to progress to overt hypothyroidism, or is that someone who may revert? Because we know that up to 40% of patients can revert over time. So if I had to say, when would I check off? When you go onto the electronic health record and click TPO antibodies, it might be in that instance where I'm trying to figure out if this is someone who I can follow less frequently or I need to follow more frequently because what we know is if the antibodies are positive, that is the patient who's more likely to progress to overt hypothyroidism. Um, so in answer to your question, what causes it? It's basically Hashimoto's, 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 Hashimoto's is the most common cause of primary hypothyroidism. Obviously, um, patients can have um, surgery. Um, patients can have radiation, and that's actually become more more important as we have all sorts of life-saving therapies for patients um, who have Hodgkin's disease, who get head and neck radiation, total body irradiation for bone marrow transplant, the thyroid gets affected. So that's important to think about in those individuals. It's far less common to have as a cause of hypothyroidism a perfectly normal thyroid, but something's wrong with your pituitary and it stops sending the signal, which is TSH, to the thyroid. That's central hypothyroidism, but absolutely worth thinking about. We're seeing more and more TBI, especially from the veterans. And so it's really important to think about those causes in someone, you know, and people have even now, there are a couple of articles that have come out in athletes where there's a lot of contact. So to think of the way we think about all sorts of pituitary um, issues there. And when there is pituitary dysfunction, TSH is one of the last hormones to go. So it's probably more important to think about the other pituitary hormones, but it's a time to think about central hypothyroidism. I think we should go back to the case here. So Miss Miss Q, her TSH, we check it. It's 23. And we're, we're identifying for the purposes of this podcast, normal range is 0.5 to 4.5. Mm -hmm. And her free T4 is 0.5. Our normal range is 0.7 to 1.6. So would you start her on levothyroxine and uh, what would you, uh, what dose would you start or how would you think about starting it? Yeah, so she has overt hypothyroidism with a low free T4 and a high TSH. And here's an example where I don't think, you know, I'd want to examine her thyroid, obviously, um, but it could be small and atrophic or it could be large. Um, the reason I would want to examine her thyroid as well is you can also have concomitant nodules. So you just want to make sure you're not feeling any nodules at the same time. But uh, in someone like this who's young and healthy, you can start a full replacement dose, which is about 1.6 micrograms per kilogram, um, provided someone's BMI is relatively normal. There's some recent data that's shown that it's probably more towards your um, ideal body weight. So if someone's BMI gets higher, the starting dose might be lower, like 1.45 or 1.4 micrograms per kilogram. So based on her weight, I would start a full replacement dose. 
Right. Yeah. So the it goes more with lean body mass, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's maybe why the elderly have uh, have decreasing requirements as well. Do you think that's part of it? Probably in the elderly, there's been some data about metabolism, so that it may have to do with the metabolism of thyroid hormone slows down. Like with many medications, metabolism changes, and so you have to lower doses. But I think it is important to recognize that if someone has a really elevated BMI, you're not going to be doing 1.6 micrograms per kilogram based upon their actual weight. There's some good recent data that say this might be as low as, for example, 1.4 micrograms per kilogram. And, can I, and I'm sorry to sort of bypass, but just because you mentioned the thyroid exam, I did want to ask if you had any tips or pointers, because I usually have the patient hyperextend and then they dry swallow when they're just like, I'm strangling them <laughs> and it doesn't go well for anyone. So how is there, is there any, any pro tips for the thyroid exam, which I feel a lot of people struggle with? Yeah. So thank you. I wish, I wish we could do this. I wish this was a a 3d thing where we could do this with virtual reality. So, um, as opposed to what we're taught in medical school, that we should never use our thumbs because there's a pulse. The best way to actually feel the thyroid is from the front using your thumbs and not from the back using your four other fingers to sort of come around and push their sternal cleidomastoids away. So what I do is I feel from the front. And the first thing I do is you want to know where the thyroid is. So I will often see people start moving their fingers up and down the muscles trying to find the thyroid. The best way to find the thyroid is to use your thumb and to roll it down the trachea. You're sort of rocking your thumb back and forward because you're trying to feel where the isthmus is, which is usually right around the cricoid cartilage. And it feels sort of like a speed bump, or I'll describe it like a stretched gummy worm. I like gummies, but it's a stretched gummy worm. And you feel feel your finger rolling over it. And the reason why that's important is the isthmus inserts in the lower one-third of the thyroid. So once you know where the isthmus is, you can then use your thumbs. And on either side, what you're doing is the thyroid is plastered against the trachea. So it's not in a horizontal plane, but it's plastered against the trachea. So you can use your thumbs then, and you know where the thyroid is, and you push medially on either side using the trachea to provide resistance, and you can feel the lobes of the thyroid. And then you can ask the patient to swallow. Fantastic. Thanks great. for asking. So like that the opposite call. of what I've been doing. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right. My thumbs will make it back into the physical exam. <laughs> I, I That sounds grim. So back to the dosing of medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading in, I think it was the ATA guidelines that you had recommended. Uh, one of the guidelines you had sent us to read. Um, they were mentioning that about 75% of the oral thyroid hormone is absorbed mm-hmm. Uh, under normal conditions. And that's why if you're giving IV instead of oral, you should lower the dose by about 75%. But speaking of this absorption issue, how do you counsel patients to take meds and supplements and meals in relation to their thyroid hormone? It's a great question. So the first thing um, we talk about is a couple of the red flags that will really um, interfere with thyroid absorption, levothyroxine absorption before we talk about meals. Um, And so those are really iron Um, So if you take your thyroid hormone with either an iron supplement or a multivitamin or a prenatal containing iron, you really will decrease its absorption. That's probably the biggest one. The other one are soy products. And especially, we found this out ages ago when infants who had congenital hypothyroidism had to be switched to soy milk from cow's milk and their TSHs went up over 100. So especially, you know, soy milk has become really popular as a way to get, you know, calcium because it's fortified. It's so especially, so soy protein and iron are the two biggest ones. There's a number of other medications as well, but those are really the two biggest offenders that will interfere with levothyroxine absorption. Um, a lot of pharmacists and I, I don't want to, when the patient goes to the pharmacy to pick up their medication, the pharmacist says, you better not take this with your breakfast. You have to take this away from meals. So our patients have really busy lives and they're doing many things at once. And to me, the most important thing is that this medication should not be something that alters your quality of life and what you do with your mornings. You can take it at night before you go to sleep. And honestly, and this is another hearsay. I'm saying another her- heretic thing here. As long as you take your medication consistently. So if you're going to take it half an hour before you eat breakfast, just always take it half an hour before you eat breakfast. But then if for some reason you go on an intermittent fast and you stop eating breakfast, then you might have a problem. So like, just be <laughs> consistent about how you do it. And there's actually a really great paper that just came out that's really pragmatic that said, as long as you take it three hours after or before a meal, which means you could take it in the mid-afternoon, 
you can get absorption. So the most important thing is consistency. So you have people who are taking alendronate and they have to separate it from their medications. You have people that are getting up in the morning and want to drink coffee and want to eat and then have a, you know, a car ride or a train ride to work. You just have to be consistent. Well, there's all the rage of the antihypertensives at night, and we've been doing some statins at nighttime, too. Is there a reason not to be just doing the levothyroxine at nighttime, too? You, you can, and it's absorbed well at night. There are some studies that said if you want better consistency, because especially if you're going to eat it a half an hour before, take it a half an hour before breakfast, we eat things differently, you can take it at night. There is no physiologic reason to do it. The half-life of thyroid hormone a levothyroxine is seven days. So, you know, sometimes a patient will say, every time I take my levothyroxine in the morning, two hours later, this happens to me, or I feel like this. And I say, we need to figure out why you feel that way, but it's not because of your pill. It doesn't work like acetaminophen where it takes away your headache within half an hour. I read uh, this, this was buried in the guidelines somewhere. And I thought this was so cool. I don't think I've had cause to do this, but they mentioned patients taking pills once a week if their compliance is so bad. Have you ever done that? Um, we have. And actually, it's really interesting. That came from the Marshall Islands. Like in the 1950s, we did some atomic bomb testing there in the atolls. And that's actually where it came from was that there wasn't a lot of access. So they were giving people levothyroxine once a week. So it's not as we, we talked a little bit about how T4 is metabolized to T3, and it's not quite as physiologic to, to do it that way. You can. Um, the challenge is the people who aren't taking their thyroid hormone often don't just take it on. They won't take all those pills on one day. So that it's often sometimes if you're in a setting where there's some maybe limited access to medical care and it's a patient who needs a lot of assistance, that you might make up some, you might use some of these altered non-daily regimens. Um, in people who are um, non-adherent, it's a real challenge um, because getting them to take it even once a day, you know, how do you do it? Do you try to supervise? Do you get another, you know, you do this with all your hypertension medicines and your diabetes medicines. How do you get the community involved to try to get, or the family involved to try to get the patient to make sure that he or she is taking the medication? But you can do it. All right. So probably not for all my patients. <laughs> uh, the, the next question I would have is how, once you start, let's say we start her on the weight-based dosing based on her ideal body weight, and uh, when would you check again? And what would your goal be for a person, a younger person? And, and we could talk about older people next. So um, one of the things I review when I start levothyroxine is exactly that it's not going to work like that acetaminophen. They're not going to feel better within a day or two days or even two or three weeks because the half-life is seven days. So usually we check at about five to six weeks to see when the thyroid, when the TSH is in equilibrium, the thyroid hormone, excuse me, is in equilibrium. So we check the TSH. And one of the things that we found, which is, um, there is not a um, specific mechanism for it, is that often the resolution of symptoms will lag behind normalization of the TSH by two to three months. Generally, you mentioned that for the purposes, I think you said in, in our discussion tonight, that a TSH is, let's say, 0.4 to 4.5. Um, it turns out the TSH is, it's not a, um, a normal bell-shaped curve, that 90% of patients have TSH levels less than two and a half to three. So we try to get the TSH in that lower part of the range. But interestingly, there are some very nicely done research studies that say that if you take a patient who is hypothyroid and in a randomized controlled fashion, you either run their TSH at around one and a half or you run their TSH between three and four, they can't identify the difference and there's no difference in symptoms. So even though we like to keep the TSH in the lower part of the normal range, which is where most of the population is distributed. In a randomized controlled trial fashion, there are no data to support that if you take patients and you either randomize them to keep their TSHs lower or higher, that it makes a difference. As a clinician, even though that may not work in a clinical trial, I have patients and I know that they, they feel differently when their TSH is 4.2 than when it's 0.8. So you're saying you try to keep them, you try to keep them uh, less than three and a half or so, yeah. or you t between 0 0.5 and three and a yeah, half. Yeah, usually 0 0.5 to two and a half to three. To two and a half. For hypothyroid okay. patients. Again, it falls under the principle of, you know, not doing any harm. So in those patients, I, you know, try to keep their TSH around 0 0.8. 
I think the challenge is when a patient says they feel better when their TSH is 0.1, and then you're running into issues where there are potential dangers, and that's not acceptable. And what, I guess, what do you talk about as those potential dangers? How do you counsel them on the risk associated with going lower? Yeah, so um, then you're talking about hyperthyroidism, and it's exogenous because you're giving too much thyroid hormone. And um, especially as people get older, um, we know that there are increased risk of fractures for postmenopausal women. There is also increased risk of atrial fibrillation for older patients as well, both men and women. And this has been really well studied. Um, It turns out that if you look at how good all of us are as physicians at getting patients to youth thyroid ranges, and this has actually been done, that about 35% of the time, even when we're trying to make patients use thyroid, they're still either hypothyroid or they're taking too much thyroid hormone. So even when we try, we don't always get it right. Um, but it's important because the potential um, dangers of taking too much thyroid hormone, especially in older patients, can be life-threatening. This struggle is why I was asking you about once-weekly dosing. I was hoping that there was some like easy road that I had overlooked. No. Uh, I guess not. Paul, you had something smart to say, I'm sure. Oh, no, not, not usually. Um, I guess I had a question about, do you ever run into issues with sort of variations among manufacturers? I feel like that's yeah. a conversation that sometimes had or, or sort of brand name only just to avoid that. Is there utility in doing that? And how do you how do you address that? Yeah, so um, it's a really important question. And it has to do with how the FDA determines if um, drugs are equivalent to each other. The challenge is that When you begin to look at certain brands, um, there are two very well-known brands on the market where if you were to do that test, they would not meet the FDA definition of being interchangeable. And some of the generics are equivalent to one and to not the other. And this probably has to do with not the fact they all have the same amount of levothyroxine plus or minus 5% because the FDA does allow some variation in the amount of levothyroxine in the pill. But it probably has to do with the fillers. You know, a pill is more than levothyroxine. It has the gelatin and everything else. And that may affect absorption. So that there's now a preparation, for example, that's a liquid preparation, which is a branded only preparation, which has been shown that for example, if a patient is having some absorption issues, they may absorb that better. But the recommendations are that if you switch from one branded preparation to another, you have to recheck the TSH. And the challenge with the generics is that there are a number of different manufacturers of generic. And for example, I'm on a generic blood pressure medicine, and sometimes it's oval and sometimes it's round, but my blood pressure is the same. Like I can check my blood pressure. So my end target for my blood pressure medicine, it's working. But if you switch from a generic that's round to a generic that's oval, your TSH may differ. And that's actually been shown. So generics are determined at different pharmacies based upon the contracts they get. So generics can change. So what we do tell our patients is that if they notice that the shape of their generic has changed, we want them to be on the same preparation for consistency and absorption. We ask them to give us a call and maybe recheck their TSH. For most patients who are hypothyroid, it's probably not the biggest difference. It may be the difference between, let's say, a TSH of 0.8 and maybe 3. The real challenge comes in our patients who are who have thyroid cancer and where you're trying to keep a much more narrow range of TSH. And for those patients, changes in levothyroxine, the preparation itself may result in wider fluctuations that can be potentially dangerous. I, I wanted to bring it back for a second to the case. And let's just say that we made this, instead of a 31-year-old woman, let's say she was... 71 years old, how might her starting dose differ or your approach to starting treatment differ? And what would be her treatment goal uh, when you're looking at her TSH? Yeah, so it's um, for older patients, and generally people will say over the age of 65 or 70, we don't generally start with a full replacement dose. Um, unless, for example, you just took out their thyroid, so their thyroid levels were normal yesterday, and now their thyroid's gone, and you're, you're putting them on it. So you would start with 25 to 50 micrograms. If they're healthy, 50 might be fine. But, for example, if they have a history of coronary artery disease, you might start with 25 because that will increase your MVO2, and you don't want to precipitate angina. So in an older person, you start slow, and you you can adjust by increments of 12 and a half to 25. And your target can be a TSH in the high normal range, four to five to six in someone who's over 70, which could be normal for them um, based upon what we know about epidemiologic data. 
So start slow, start low and go slow is usually what we say. Would this be the same in subclinical hypothyroidism for everyone? You start lower or do you start full treatment dose in? In a younger person, you can start a full treatment dose. Um, but there's no reason not to. But what I generally tend to do there is um, say, you know, their thyroid's working at 80 to 90%. So if it was a younger person and their TSH was 14, you know, even if let's say they weighed, you know, um, 70 kilos, um, and so their dose might be, let's say, 150 micrograms. I might give them 100 or 112. But you could easy, easily start with a full replacement dose. It's a lot easier to go up than to overdose. So you don't want to – the symptoms with taking too much thyroid hormone are the things that you're trying to avoid, and you can um, more easily in, in give dosage increments if you need to. So, Susan, the other thing that comes up all the time on is, is people on replacement doses – their TSH is in the normal range, maybe even in the lower part of the normal range, but they still say they don't feel well. How do you counsel patients in that situation? And is there anything else that we need to start thinking about or, or doing for them? I think we're pushing where we need to go with, you know, eventually what we know about personalized medicine and understanding people's own um, makeup here. Because what you're really talking about here is, is this a person who is able to achieve euthyroidism on levothyroxine or T4 alone when we know that they're missing 20% of the T3 that came from the thyroid? And we can't, for most patients, like 85 to 90 to 95% of patients do great on levothyroxine alone. But there are some patients that really seem to need a little bit of T3 to replace that 20% of T3 that comes from the thyroid. We currently don't have the best way to identify those patients. And if you look at, you know, meta-analyses, when you look at people as a population, there's no overall benefit that's been shown of giving levothyroxine alone versus trials that have given levothyroxine and T3, which is known as triiodothyronine. Um, but that's in populations. So um, in general, the symptoms that I look at when I'm, or that what I am listening for in a patient when I'm thinking about whether this is someone who might need that little bit of T3 that they're missing from the thyroid, it's not dry skin, it's not inability to lose weight, it's not constipation. Um, it's cognitive issues. So it's the person who tells me hmm. that it's taking them longer to focus. And remember, I talked about sleep in the beginning. The prerequisite is they have to have good sleep. Like there can't be that they're staying up night and they're stressed out and that's why they can't focus. But given that, they really will tell you that, you know, it's a mental fog, a mental cloudiness. They just can't focus quite as much. And it seems to be that it's really this effect of T3 in the, in the brain. And this is where a number of us are willing to do that trial, which is called the N of one. And we have that discussion mm -hmm. with our patient and we say, look, I'm going to try to replace that 20% of T3 that actually comes from your thyroid. The 80% of T3 is still going to come from the levothyroxine I'm giving you. Um, it's a little challenging though, because we don't have a long acting T3 like we do levothyroxine. And if you take T3, which alone is called Cytomel, um, it peaks in troughs within three hours. So you have to give it at least as a twice a day dose. And what you want to do is replicate the ratio of like what the thyroid makes. So the thyroid, if you look at thyroid production of T4 and T3, it's 14 to 1. So if someone is on, let's say, 112 micrograms of levothyroxine, they might need like seven and a half of T3. So you might give it as five of Cytomel in the morning or, or, and two and a half of Cytomel in the afternoon. Um, but it's trying to get that ratio right because you're replicating what comes from the thyroid, which is a ratio of 14 to 1. And I'll usually try that. And then I'll ask somebody how they feel. Like, do they feel differently? Have the symptoms resolved? Um, and sometimes they have and sometimes they haven't. And sometimes somebody says six months later, they want to go back to T4 alone. But I will use separate preparations of levothyroxine and liothyronine, which is the generic, actually, for Cytomel. Um, I don't use the extract because the extract is fixed in a ratio of four to one. So all of the extracts are 39 micrograms of T4 to roughly eight or nine micrograms of T3, whereas what you're trying to replace from the thyroid is 14 to 1. So I'd rather use the separate pill of T3, which is liothyronine, and then be able to personalize that ratio, again, with the same TSH target. Now, when, when you say in the morning and the afternoon, what, what time in the like afternoon? Like two or three in the afternoon. 
Okay. That, which yeah. is kind of what I A couple of caveats because it peaks and troughs and it can affect your heart. I won't do this in an older patient if there's any issue of coronary disease, you know, anything okay. where there could be something adverse because with five micrograms, you shouldn't, but you can go super physiologic. And the other time you won't do it is during pregnancy because it's T4 that crosses the placenta and is needed by the baby. So even if I have a young woman who feels really good on T4 and T3, I always will review physiology with her and I say, when it's time to conceive, we're going back to T4 alone. What if you have a patient who's been on armor thyroid, they're going to come see you and their TSH is normal. They say they feel normal and you don't really feel comfortable continuing the armor, th- armor thyroid because you don't know how to dose yeah. that. Do you just keep the patient on armor thyroid or what, what do you do in a situation I like try to that? Lo- Yeah, I try like to what- look at the dose of armor thyroid they're taking and how much T3 is in it. And I really don't like to give more than five micrograms of T3 at a time. So... Um, one grain of armor thyroid, which is 65 milligrams, has nine micrograms. So I'd rather give like, you know, thir- like it twice a day. But once there are more than 65 milligrams a day, that's more than nine micrograms of T3. And then I get worried about okay. the dose. And that's an extract. These They've been described to me as chopped up pig thyroid, which I have no idea if that's true or not. What are they actually? They are porcine, Where, they are porcine thyroid, but they're basically this <laughs> ratio of four to one. So again, they don't replicate the what's in the normal thyroid. So my general um, approach is to say, look, let's keep you on T4, to T3, T4 and T3, so levothyroxine and liothyronine, but let's try to do it in a way that's most physiologic. And by the way, there's a lot of um, interest in making a long-acting preparation of T3 that could really replicate that 20%. That's a constant amount of T3 that's produced. And then your liver could still take the T4 and auto-regulate that T4 to T3 production that we talked about earlier that goes down if you fast, but goes up if you eat. So it'd be nice to have something that's long acting to replicate the 20%. So, so basically, Matt, that's an apt description of armor thyroid. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Elena, I think we have one, one topic area to kind of bring us home here before we get take-home points, right? Yeah. Taking us back to our 30-year-old Mrs. Q, she's doing well in her current dose of levothyroxine that's been pretty consistent for a year or so, and she returns to follow up with you. She's concerned because she is pregnant now and worries that the levothyroxine could cause harm to the baby. So how would you counsel her on hypothyroidism and levothyroxine during pregnancy, and how would her pregnancy change your management. No, it's a, it's really important. So the first thing I do is before she gets pregnant, when I have a young woman in reproductive years who is diagnosed with hypothyroidism, I talk to them about pregnancy on day one. I take care of a lot of college students at Penn and they're not even thinking about pregnancy. And I tell them, I go, I don't know where you're gonna be in 10 years, but I just want you to hear this from me that you know we're gonna get you on a dose of levothyroxine now, we'll get you to a normal range. But when you get pregnant, your requirements are going to go up and you can't wait until you see your OB for the first time at 11 or 12 weeks gestation because that increase in your dose requirement can happen as early as six weeks gestation. And what we know is the baby's thyroid doesn't function until around probably closer to 20 weeks. And yet, if you were to examine fetal neurologic tissues, thyroid hormone is present in the fetal brain as early as six weeks, and it comes from one place only, and that's the mom. So it's critically important to optimize maternal thyroid hormone function in someone who's taking thyroid hormone, um, levothyroxine, before they get pregnant, and then to follow them carefully. It turns out that the average requirement increase depends on you know the cause, how much functioning thyroid is left. Um, so it can vary between maybe 25 to 40%. 40% if your thyroid has been removed surgically, maybe 25 to 30% if you have hypothyroidism Hashimoto's. So some endocrinologists will say, until you can get to us, take two extra pills a week, which is sort of a 28% increase. So if you're on 100 micrograms a day and you find out you're pregnant until you can get your TSH checked, um, it's not quite the same as taking all seven pills on one day, but let's say on a Monday and a Thursday, take two pills. So you're taking nine pills a week. Um, It's really important, remember the iron thing, separate that prenatal vitamin from the levothyroxine. And it's a time that, you know, if you do that dosage increase correctly with the appropriate increase early in pregnancy, even though you have to monitor in the rest of pregnancy, they'll probably remain stable. So the the advice to clinicians is if you have a non-pregnant patient and the TSH is six or eight, 
you might go from 112 to 125 in a non-pregnant patient. If you have a pregnant patient and the TSH is 8, just go from 112 to 150. So you're done for the rest of your pregnancy. You're you're talking about that dosing in pregnancy reminded me that we didn't really get into this. This seemed to come up a ton when I was working more primary care where you get like when you're adjusting doses and you have to pick like, what am I going to go up to? Do you do you like do you do that where you're like, OK, take one and a half pills on this day or do you always just try to find oh a dose God. that can be the same every day? Does this bother you, Paul? Or was this just my like OCD? No, it's that's- a great yeah. question, but I never <laughs> With warfarin, with nothing, anytime I can avoid sort of a multi-dose regimen, I do just because it's it's hard enough just to take a pill every day, let alone different doses. Yeah. But I, I'm okay. being anxious to hear um, Susan's answer. Yeah, well, since so in the United States, as you know, we have mic- we have dosage adjustments that are 12 micrograms. You know, we we 50 to 75, but then everything's a 12 microgram until 150. So you can pretty much give them a daily dose. There are many places in the world where they only have 50s, 100s, and 150s, and then Paul, you are really stuck because then you really have to do that. But in the United States, when you're between the 88 and 150, it's a lot easier to just take the same dose every day. A couple of caveats, your patient just picked up their 90 pills and they're like, oh, and now you're calling me to change the dose. So that's (laughs) when you'll do the take only, if they say they picked up 150 and they need to go down to 137, have them take six and a half pills of 150 a week. The time that you need to do it though is between 150, 175, 175, 200, let's say someone's on 175 and their TSH is six or seven, if you go up to 200, that could be too much. So in those bigger, when you're in the larger doses and the increments are 25 micrograms, that's where you might do more an extra half pill or half pill less. But otherwise, with the 12 micrograms, you don't really need to. Okay. Yeah, that's your, the 90-day thing is what, uh, Cashlack has a 90-day <laughs> and that that really yep. that really made it tough. The people would be like, I just picked up all these pills. All the what am I supposed to do now? And I'm like, oh boy. Yeah. Anything else that we should ask before we get take home points? Did we ask a referral question? We always have to. Oh, and then one other questions. thing, just about the pregnancy. So something else to remember is it's the reason why thyroid hormone doses go up in pregnancy is multifactorial. But one of the reasons has to do with the estrogen effect on thyroid binding protein. Um, because thyroid hormone is bound to protein. So it's important to know women who take birth control pills or postmenopausal women who are on HRT a little bit to a lesser effect because it is a first-pass effect through the liver. So if you have a woman whose TSH is 1 and she comes back to see you in 8 months and her TSH is 7, the reason could be that she started a birth control pill. Similarly, if her TSH is 1 and she stops her birth control pill and she comes back to see you, her TSH could be 0.08. So these are estrogen-containing birth control pills. So estrogen-containing birth control pills, because of the first pass effect in the liver, will increase binding protein. And so you'll have to increase the dose. And when they stop it, you have to decrease the dose. For the women who nurse, the progesterone-only birth control pills, the IUDs that are progesterone-only, that doesn't change it. It's the oral preparations of estrogen. So after giving birth, does the increased need of levothyroxine immediately go away as well? Exactly. Yeah. So if let's say that person who was on 112, their TSH was eight, we raised them to 150. We checked their TSH, you know, every couple of weeks throughout pregnancy, they were fine. What you basically say to them, as soon as you deliver, you have to write them a new prescription because their prescription is probably expired, but they go home on 112 and you recheck their TSH six weeks later. It doesn't go up in nursing. Okay. And if they take a micro, a, a progesterone-only birth control pill that while they're nursing, that doesn't change uh, the thyroid hormone requirements. Okay. All right. So when, when should we, we be referring patients to you? I probably will not be starting patients on uh, T3, but uh, when do you think patients with hypothyroidism should be referred to an endocrinologist? It's a really good question because hypothyroidism is something that is treated mostly by the primary care physician, whether it's family medicine. Sometimes for women, it's their GYN because they don't have an internist when they're younger, their um, internal medicine physician. So generally, patients where you have challenges normalizing TSH. So those patients where you were thinking about that, there are some very unusual things like resistance to thyroid hormones, some real genetic things where there's problems with the thyroid hormone receptor. So where it just doesn't seem like the therapy is working from you can't normalize the thyroid level. So any challenges, funky thyroid function tests that are happening, um, that would be a good time to refer to an endocrinologist. 
I found that depending on your comfort, there are a number of internists who I've spoken with who feel comfortable using T3, others don't. It's certainly a time to consider referral and remembering that an endocrinologist may say to that patient, um, they maybe they won't get, not, you know, not all endocrinologists are using T3. Um, as I said, if you look at all the evidence um, and the meta-analyses, they haven't shown that overall that um, there is an effect on parameters that you measure like lipids or binding proteins. Patients certainly often can identify it and some of them may feel better, but um, I think that's a very, that's an important time to consider as well. Pregnancy, just make sure if you're going to do it that you make that big dosage increase because there are the challenges that sometimes you don't make a big enough increase in dose. So just to be aware of that and to counsel your women of reproductive age about what's going to happen in pregnancy because as we know, most pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. And the most common time for an antenatal visit is right at the end of the first trimester. So that dosage increase is going to need to be done much earlier than that. Okay. I think those were kind of take-home points. I don't know if there's I don't know if you have any others that you want, but I think this is a good spot to end. Uh, we usually give the guests a chance if you want to ask ask the audience anything or send them to a website or plug anything that you'll be involved with coming up. Um, so I think the um, American Thyroid Association, you alluded to before the ATA, the American Thyroid Association is the professional organization of endocrinologists and surgeons. Um um, who are really dedicated to the thyroid, and there's some really great evidence-based guidelines there. Um, there is also excellent information for patients as well, so that if you're looking for um, information about hyper-hypothyroidism, thyroid nodules, either the Endocrine Society, which is the other professional organization, or the American Thyroid Association have great, really good, easy-to-read, clear information for patients, and the guidelines are all evidence-based, so it's a great place to go. Um, I think it's a field where we may see some changes in how we approach this in the next couple of years, especially as we understand more about the deionases and thyroid hormone transporters and polymorphisms and genetic polymorphisms. And I think we may see a lot of evolution in our understanding of why patients feel differently with the same thyroid hormone levels on the same medication. So that's kind of exciting to think that we can do better. This was awesome. Uh, thank you for thank you so much for spending extra time with us. I think we got s so much great stuff. This yeah. is gonna be this is gonna be really popular. People have been asking that for this for a really long time. Stay healthy, and hands yeah. and everything. Bye Take bye care. Bye bye. bye. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye bye. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're dedicated to deliver you high-value, practice-changing information. And to do that, we require your highbrow and hilarious feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or send us some electronic mail at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And an inordinate thanks to our producers for this episode, Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on the Twits, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on the Gram, and Chris the Chimanchu, who's still on the Book of Faces. Till we meet again, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. Did <laughs> I hate all of that. <laughs> just just aggressively and Did thoroughly you, with my soul. I'm, I'm just thinking that he spent a fair amount of time during the show uh, uh, like on the twi <laughs> just changing that. No, no. It, it, this was actually um, when you guys were just, just talking after we were done recording. Okay. But anyways, that's... Uh, you guys were saying something, something thyroid, yeah. so I just muted. And, um, yeah. I would like to thank <laughs> Elena Gibson for uh, helping to write and produce this episode. Thanks to Stuart for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Elena Gibson here. Short, sweet, <laughs> I like it. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.